<laughs> we want to thank Seth for putting this together and Ellis and maybe some others. They're always good. Now, for some of you that were contemplating volunteering in that area, you're no longer contemplating that, are you? You're done, right? So that is not what you want to see, your picture up there. Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Everybody well? Yeah, it's good to see you. Turn to someone around you and say good morning to them if you don't mind. Shake their hand if they're willing to be touched. Let them know how glad you are that they're sitting by you today. Once you have done that, turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6 and verse 1. Judges 6, verse 1. We'll actually take our teaching from a narrative there, and you will understand, well, you know it's Gideon, if you have probably ever read it before. It's the story of the narrative of Gideon, so we'll talk about that in a moment. And in that narrative, in that narrative, there is a phrase that we kind of have removed from that and use as sort of a way to title this, and I think it's perhaps one of the most intriguing questions that we find in Scripture. It's found in the Judges chapter 6. It says, if the Lord is with me, then why did this happen? If the Lord is with me, then why did this happen? And I think it is very intriguing. Before we get to that, I have to talk to you about fear for a moment, and then you'll understand how all of this ties together for a minute. Yeah. And when we talk about fear, well, our mind goes in a lot of places, I guess. And we begin to think about all the things that we are afraid of that brings fear in our life. Some of you say that I'm afraid of spiders, and some of you are afraid of snakes, and some of you are afraid of heights, some of you are afraid of clowns. And some of you are afraid of flying, and some of you are afraid of public speaking. That's why your video was not up there this morning, right? Yes, you are. And, and then I think that, well, I read some others. There's ecclesiophobia, and that is the fear of church. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. And then there's another one I found, and, and I have to pronounce this correctly because it comes from the word homiletic, and it's called homolophobia. And that is, it's the fear of sermons. Yes, it's the fear of sermons. Uh Well, somebody say, I'm not afraid of sermons. I'm just afraid of long sermons. You know, that's right. Yes. And so have no fear. We're okay. Just be calm for a moment. All right. Yes. And so we all deal with fear. But the number one fear that I discovered is that the fear of failure. It is the fear of failure. And that is how this ties into Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It's that moment where you think, well, I blew it. I made a mistake. I have messed up that I just can't do anything right. I don't know if you've ever said that before, that I, I, I just, I'm just not good at this. I'm just bad at relationships. And so, well, I'm a failure, <clears throat> is, is what we say about ourselves at times. And when you go back to that thought of relationships, and maybe you say, well, I'm really bad at relationships, that have you ever supposed that really, well, that relationship that maybe that you were in, well, maybe God had another idea for your life. Maybe God had a, another plan for your life. Because I think that sometimes we look at those things in our life and we're convinced that they are failures. We are. But when we, we look at them in a different way, maybe we're saying, well, maybe this is not such a failure. It is what I would call in Scripture a holy redirect. It is where God takes our lives and we think that we are or we have planned to head in a certain direction. And God says, wait a minute, I'm going to steer you a little to the left, a little to the right, or maybe even in a, another direction of your life. Because that is my will. It is simply my will over your will. It brings us to a thought before we get to Judges. It's Proverbs 16 and 9. I read this text last week for you. It's not on the screen. It's a small text. It says this in Proverbs 16 and 9. The heart of man plans. That we set our plans. It is our ideas. We have this concocted idea within our mind of where we're going to go. So the heart of man plans his ways. But the Lord establishes his steps. 
And what that means is this, that we are headed in this direction. God comes along and God, kind of who is providential hand, he guides us in a different way. And sometimes we see because of the circumstances around that, we see that that is failure for us. Well, this didn't work out, so at some point in my life, I must have failed here. But I think that sometimes we have to look at it in a lens of that of being a holy redirect for our lives. And thank God that He has redirected many of us in this building at some point in our life. So what could be happening? Is this thing I think that is failure? Is it really failure at all? Or is it God redirecting my life? It's Judges chapter 6 beginning with verse 1, and I read this morning. It says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I underline that part. And the Lord gave them, I underline that part, because I think that is very interesting. The Lord gave them into the hands of the, of the Midian, of Midian seven years. That they're evil in the sight of God. They're doing evil in the sight of God. And so what God does, God allows them to be handed over to this invading force and, and so it's kind of an interesting thing. For seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They hide from them when they show up. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Verse 4, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkeys. So there's a couple of thoughts as we get into this text that uh, deals with that of Gideon. And the first is this, it's always those Midianites' fault. It is always their fault. Now, I have to give you a little caveat before I go any further, and that is this. That's not an exhaustive statement. Because sometimes that you are, you are an innocent victim of things in your life. So I have to say that to you, and I value that in your life, that sometimes you are. But I think it makes it very relevant, because most of the time, we fail to take responsibility for things in our life that have resulted in trouble within our life, or tough times within our lives. We fail to take that responsibility. No. And you say, but Mark, wait a minute. So that's what you're going to talk about with us this morning, taking responsibility. Because if you are, then I don't like that subject at all. And so I'm glad you fed us some donuts. You gave us some coffee. If you got here and you got some before they ran out this morning, I guess. But I'm glad you did that because as soon as you pray, we're out of here and we're done with this. Bump this because, because I don't want to talk about responsibility because it is something that we don't want to really embrace. It is something we don't want to wrap our mind around. And so what I've taught my boys is this, that over the years, that I've said that every journey in our life begins at home. It does. So when you look at your life and the circumstances of your life, you have to start back with you. At some point, you have to look at your own heart and your own life and say, Lord, where is my involvement in where I am today? Where? Because this is exactly where Israel is. They said Israel did what was evil in the sight of God, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian for seven years. Could it be that? In this thing that I look at as failure, in this thing that's happened in my life, even though I am the cause of it, could it be that God has a bigger plan for my life? Could it be that God is doing a, a redirect for my life? Could it be that? Because we do crazy things to ourselves at times. We do. Yes. So, so here is a thought this morning. Uh, just a little survey. How many of you have ever hit your finger with a hammer? Raise your hand. Have you ever hit your finger with a hammer? Yeah. It is a, it's a, it's a, an experience, isn't it? Absolutely. So here's the next question. When you hit your finger with a hammer, how many of you cussed? No, no, don't, no, just say, but, but don't, just wait for a minute, okay? Some of you put your hands up. I was looking away like this, right? Yes. 
Some of you are so open and honest, you say, well, Mark, here's what I said. And you just kind of like let her rip, you know, kind of deal. Yes. Have you ever thought about the concept of a hammer? You take a hammer, you draw it back like this, you take your other hand, you hold a nail in its place, and you are so dependent on your eye-hand coordination that somehow between this distance here and this distance here, that you're coordinated enough to remove your hand so you don't simply blast your finger into pieces. It is exactly what you do. And so some of us maybe are not as coordinated as others, and we end up in that sense. We do really dumb things to ourselves. We do. If you're ever hangry, now I, you know what hangry is. Hangry is the, the a level beyond hungry, right? And if you're ever hangry and you finally get to where you're going to eat and you get some food and you always just say, you say, I'm starving. Well, first of all, you're not starving, but you feel like you are. And so you get the food in your mouth and you're working it, boy, and it tastes so good. And all of a sudden you bite down on the inside of the cheek of your mouth, right? Have you ever done that? Yes. It's a life-changing experience. Because what you have is a conversation with yourself after that. And you say to self, self, never do that again. And self says, trust me, I will never do that again. And then self says to self, especially never do that again in the same place. And self says, what do you think I am? I would never do that to myself. And no sooner than you get those thoughts out of your mind, then what happens? You bite down on your cheek again in the very same spot. Yes, it brings tears to your eyes. Yes, if you have never said a bad word, that might be the moment, right? That might be the moment in your life. And so it's, you, you do, we do really dumb things to ourselves at times. And, and when we take that and we lay that over our lives, here's Israel. Here's what they're doing. They're planting. The crop grows. The Midianites come in. There's so many of them. The scriptures tell us in a moment that you can't even number their camels. They come in. They eat up all the grub and everything that they grow. And, and this has been a cycle for seven years within their lives. It happens every time they have a crop. And what do they say? Well, here they come. And, and it's their fault that we're in this situation. It's their fault that we're hungry. It is their fault that we're having to live in caves and to live in the mountains to keep away from those crazy Midianites. It is their fault. Can they ever see the reality that this could be a fault of their own greed and their own pride? And so God is working in the middle of that to reveal to them their own heart. Is God big enough to work in the middle of our own self-inflicted troubles? And I would say to you, yes, He is. You're going to see that played out during this text and this, this narrative today. You are. But when you look at it failure, it looks like it's failure. It looks like that this is just a wasted moment in my life. I just kind of chalk this up for whatever it is, and I move on, maybe hopefully never remember it again. Is God big enough to work in that moment in your life? And I will tell you today, and the Scriptures will tell you even in a more profound way, that yes, He is absolutely big enough to do that. Look at verse 5. For they would come up talking about the Midianites with their livestock and with their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. There's so many of them. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the Lord of Israel or when the, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Oh, here, here's a wake-up call. 
I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. He said, you have to trust me. There's a track record here. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, look what he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Does God love us enough to work in our lives in those really dumb moments when we inflict pain upon ourselves? Oh, it's the Midianites' fault. It's it's always their fault. This heathenistic horde of godless people that come into our country. Yes, but God says, but hey, but you have not obeyed my voice. Oh, Lord, I'll deal with that later. But the thing is that it's like having a backyard barbecue and and all of a sudden all of your neighbors show up uninvited. They eat all the food. They leave your yard in a mess and they go back home. And and, and, no, it's their fault, God. Don't you understand? Can I bring this maybe a little more personal to you? It's like this. My supervisor doesn't understand me on my job. No, no. I need this promotion. I deserve this promotion. The question is, how many times have you showed up early to work and how many times have you showed up late? Oh, Mark, let's not talk about that. No, no, absolutely not. That's not the issue. It's the professor's fault. He doesn't know how to teach or she doesn't know how to teach. She doesn't. She doesn't teach like I think she should or he should teach. So, no. Well, listen, how many times have you came unprepared? It's quiet, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? Yes. Are you the person that's pulled over by the police officer? And you're angry because they're not out catching the real criminals? Have you ever? Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? I'm just speeding. Come on. There's people out there robbing banks and doing terrible things like that. And I'm just speeding. You're not doing your job. Come on. And what you're saying is this, that it's not, it's not my fault. And we, we go through life, I think, failing to take responsibility for those kinds of things. And we keep hitting our finger, I think, with the hammer and denying that we have anything to do with it. And God says, hey, wait a minute. Understand this. You have not obeyed my voice. And I'm telling you this because I want to reveal something in your heart that really needs to be fixed because I love you. God is big enough, powerful enough to work in our lives even when we have made some really, really dumb decisions. Because this moment, this opportunity, is a way for God to reveal what's really in our heart. And thus, He commits to completing what He has begun in our lives and simply making us into the person that He has designed us to become. So you thought it was a waste. You thought, wow, that was, that's just a really a stupid lapse of judgment on my part. And there's nothing will ever good will ever come. Uh, yes. God is big enough to work at those times. We continue reading this time, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah. Now that's Ophrah, not Oprah. So I just want to point that out to you, okay? So you know that, right? So you think, wait a minute, you misspelled the word up there on the screen. No, it's Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. And I thought that was always interesting. I underlined that, that he's beating out wheat in the wine press. That those two don't seem to go together. Think about it later. It'll come to you. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But wait a minute. I, I, this is not adding up. 
because when I see Gideon, he's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites, but God is calling him this mighty man of valor. Yes, God evidently sees something in Gideon that we can't see yet. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? There is that question. He asked this thousands of years before you and I were even alive. And now we ask the same thing. Lord, if you're with us, why does these bad things happen to us? Why does all this happen? You're a loving God. You're a loving God. You're a God that's in control of all things. But why do these things happen in our life? And he goes on to say, and we're all, and we're all, we're I have to get in a minute, okay? <laughs> and where are all his wondrous, wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Here's what he's doing. He's not only questioning God's intention, but now he's questioning God's character. Is exactly what, Lord, you've forsaken us. You promised that you would never leave us, but now you are not here and given us into the hand of Midian, he says. It's not our fault. In fact, what he's saying is this. He goes beyond the Midianites. He says, God, it's your fault. Ultimately, God, that you're in control, so it has to simply fall back upon you. It is your fault. And I imagine those people standing around Gideon in this conversation today must have stepped back and thought, ooh, Gideon's about to get it, you know. He's about to get the lightning bolt from heaven. Something is about to happen to him. But look how God responds in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do I not send you? And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Does God see something that I don't see here? Is there something that's just not open or, or visible to the human eye? Yes. It's how God works in our lives even during these times that we question him so it's that powerful question if the lord is with me then why did this happen you know these hardships oh they just don't make sense if god is truly with us if god is walking with us he is for us and not against us then why all of these kinds of things you know and 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 god in this text they recount recounts all the things that he has done for him yet gideon or them and gideon still goes back and says lord well why have you forsaken us and why have you left us you can't soft sell this Gideon is questioning the very presence of God. He is saying, God, you're not truthful, is what he's saying. You say one thing, God, but you do another thing. And so we really need to have a conversation about this. He's judging God by the circumstances they currently live in with the Midianites. And he's drawing this conclusion from God that God doesn't care and God is not involved. Why did all this happen? Why does this happen? And people, I think, say that all the time. God, if you're with us, then why do all these bad things happen in my life? Then, and we begin to draw these conclusions that God doesn't exist and God is not good and God is angry at me and God doesn't care about me. What is the answer to this question? Man, I'm glad you asked that because you always ask, ask the best questions. It's the book of John. Chapter 9 and verse 1. The scripture answers this question to us. God, if you are with us, then why are these things happening? And this answers it for us very plainly. It's John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth, talking about Christ. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that, they, that he was born blind? Jesus answered. Jesus answered. It was not that this is the this is the answer to the question. It was not that his this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Is it possible 
in my life, as I lay this text over my life, that something bigger is happening in my heart and my life? Is it possible that God is doing something that I can't see right now? Something that's not immediately visible to my limited understanding, my three and a half inch um, finite understanding of life? Is that, is, is that what God is saying? Is that, is that what's happening? Let's read on verse 4. That we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the eyes, the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So just, I don't know, what word do you guys prefer? Do you prefer the word spit or saliva? Which one do you prefer? I like spit, you know, right? It's a little more graphic. I think it gets the point across. I think this is interesting. Here is the thought, and you have to understand this. The spit part, they understand. The crowd understands. Because that, in this Jewish community, spit was seen to have some medicinal purposes. It was. So if Jesus had spit in his hand, and he would have wiped it across the blind man's face, and he would have been healed, then they would have sort of connected that with some medicinal medicinal quality of, of the spit. It was. Now, I am glad that in our culture, we don't do that, right? Yeah. You come to somebody and you say, man, I got a cold. They, hey, would you like me to spit on you, right? And that will help you. No, we want to avoid that kind. That's how you get it. We don't want, we don't want that at all. No. But yet what Jesus does, he spits on the ground, he makes some clay, and he wipes it over the blind man's eyes. There's something profound here. And what it does, it reminds them of who he is. Because this goes back to the book of Genesis, where in the book of Genesis, in the creation of the pinnacle of God's creative order, and that is mankind, what does God do? God takes the very dust of the earth and he creates you and I. The greatest, the greatest object of the creative order, that of mankind, and he creates you and I. So what it does, it takes them back to the book of Genesis and it reminds them of who he is. That he is God above and beyond all things. That all the creative order simply flows from him. He sustains very life. He is establishing something to them in this context of this text. And he's saying, hey, here's who I am. I'm not just a healer of the blind. Understand that. But yet I am the Lord who has created all things and I sustain all things with my very power. He is reminding us he's the architect of all things. And if I can fashion man like that, then I can work in the troubled times of your life. I can work in those moments. I can work in those moments when you don't see me working. I redirect your life. I am big enough to even work in the moments that you have created because of some really bad decisions that you made in life. God is saying, I'm big enough to do that. Because I'm the creator and the sustainer of all things. So the reason that is this, that when God is with us, but yet why do these things happen to us? It's for a greater purpose. It's for a greater cause in all of our life. That is what God is doing. He's molding us. He's fashioning us. He is the potter, just like that illustrated. And we are the clay. And God creates us into the individual that God has designed us to become. So you wonder why you're struggling. You wonder why you're where you are today. You wonder why life may be kind of difficult for you right now. Could you ever simply come to the understanding, could we do this, that God is doing something bigger in my life, bigger than I could ever understand, because He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. All of the creative order flows 
from Him so nothing limits Him, not even my foolish decisions. I think you have to let that sink in for a moment. Because sometimes we've excluded God from our lives because we think that we have done something really dumb within our life and there's no way that God could use this ever for good within me and God could take that and simply use that to make me into the individual He's designed me He to come. No. It is, it is powerful thought. And when, and when Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, then why is this happening? That word if, oh, that's a really powerful, but very small word. It's the very same word that Satan uses against Jesus in the wilderness when he tempts him in Matthew 4 and verse 3. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's this. So what does if do? If takes the things that we undeniably believe in and we begin to question them as whether they are true. That's exactly what happens with the word if. And so Satan attacks all of us like that. Oh, if you had been with me, then this would not have happened. So Lord, why are these things happening in my life? I think we take that statement this morning and we transform it to this statement, which simply says, because the Lord loves me, then why did this happen? It reorients our life. It's the lens that we see the world in. It simply changes the way we see the struggles of our life today. It really does. That I ground myself in the truth that God loves me. I ground myself in the truth that God loves me. And that nothing limits God from working in my life. As if we have the power to do that? No. Nothing limits me from God working within my life. Nothing limits Him. So he works in the middle of our suffering. He works in the middle of our suffering. Can I tell you something about suffering? And I have to give you this because I think it's a word that we don't want to talk about a lot. Yeah. God, God doesn't love the S word. You know, you can call it that, right? Because it's like it's a bad word. I don't like to even say it. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, and where does suffering have any kind of connotation in the life of a believer? So can I tell you right up front that God does not love the S word. He does not love the S word. He loves you. He loves you, and He's powerful enough and loving enough in your life to work through your suffering. He is powerful enough to work through your suffering. Every trial, because what I realize is that even the the hard things of my life, all of those things are lived out through the loving hand of God. Even when I make bad mistakes, even when I make foolish choices, that that doesn't limit God from working Working within my life. This time, verse 15, and our last point for, and, and last discussion point for this morning, verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. For those of you that love to make excuses, there you go. That makes you feel comfortable, doesn't it? Lord, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. Let me explain to you who I am, okay? And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks to me. He's saying, listen, I need some verification, Lord. Do you have some kind of form of identification that you can kind of prove to me who you are? And so my thought is this, God, are you sure you want me? God, because that's what he's saying. God, are you sure we want me? Because what I realize about God's character, it is, is, it is multidimensional. It, it is that, that 
there is never his attributes are never this scenario of either or in our life that what I realize that he is full of mercy and justice. He's loving toward all of his people. He is that that he is wrathful toward his enemies, simultaneously sovereign and meek. And so here's God. How does he react to Gideon when he when he has pushed God seemingly to the limit? Yes. How does God react to Gideon? And God reacts to getting in this loving and gentle and forbearing and intimately personal way. He calls him in verse 12, a man of valor. But we don't see that. But God sees his heart. God knows his life. He knows exactly what Gideon is going to become. He does that. And Gideon's first words after God calls him a man of valor is that, God, are you sure you have a plan? And if you have the plan, then, Lord, I'm not sure. I really trust your ability to have a plan for my life. and, And so God is... God, are you even interested in me? Are you even interested in your people? I'm not even sure about that. And then in verse 15, oh, Gideon gives all these excuses. We just read them of how God can't use him and how God shouldn't use him. And Lord, if you're going to do this, then give me some kind of sign so I can believe. So I can believe. And God says, hey, I want you to do something for me, Gideon. I want you to destroy all your family's idols. And so Gideon, the man of valor that he is, what does he do? He sneaks out in the middle of the night when nobody sees him, and he destroys all the idols, and he goes back to bed, and he kind of leaves it as a secret thing. He gets caught later on. His father rescues him. You can read all this later on in the text. But yet, when you look at this, you think, where is this man of valor? Look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am, I am, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing, threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece also, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And, you know, I look at this and I think, is this really a stretch for God? He's going he's gonna to lay the fleece out and... The fleece is going to be wet. The ground around it is going to be dry. And so what happens? You read on verse 38. And it was so that when he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And I would think, you know, now I'm convinced if I was Gideon, man, I, okay, God, let's get with this thing because I, I know this is really you. But then Gideon said to the Lord, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And the Lord did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground around it was with dew. What does God do with a guy like this? He boils him in hot oil. That's what he should do, right? Yes, yes. If I was God, I'd fire up the... I, I would fire up the... Um, uh, what is that little thing that we used to have that you fry stuff in? Uh, a fat daddy or a something like that thing? What is, I forgot what the little thing is called, but you had it at home and it was a little fryer. I'd, I'd get like a big version of that and I'd drop him in it. Yeah, that's what I do to guys like getting this, this fry the guy. I mean, come on. What is he doing with God? He's insulted God's character. He has he is absolutely questioned God's ability to plan, God's sovereignty. He has questioned all of those kinds of things and all of these things that he has done. But yet I'm amazed at how God responds to him. Now, a little caveat before we go any further. There are times when God does rebuke us for our faithlessness. Yes. 
there are times when that does happen. In Matthew chapter 8, you can read later on, you can read where God does that. But when I read this text, what I see missing is this. What I, what I understand is missing is there is never an opportunity, there's never a moment when God directly speaks to Gideon's failures. He never does that. He never says, Gideon, I've told you once, I'm not going to tell you again, so don't make me come down there. He never says that, right? He never says, if you don't stop asking me these questions, I am going to pull over the car, and when that happens, you know what's going to go down. He never says that. Never. Never happens. We as parents do that, right? Oh, I remember with my, with my parents, you know, and, I, and, and in the back seat, and my dad would say, if you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to come back there. And I always thought, how does that work? You're driving, and we're going down the road, and you're going to come back there. And I get this kind of view in my mind of my mother reaching over, grabbing the steering wheel. She'll say, you know, Joyce, take the steering wheel, and here's my dad. He dives over the seat at me in the back. You know, it's kind of deal. That's what I had this kind of view of that. How does that work? God never says that to Gideon. Not one single time does he do that. He doesn't. He walks beside him. He shapes him into the mighty man of valor that he will become because that is who God is. God doesn't, God calls him. God does not call him a mighty man of valor because that's who he is at that time. God calls him that because that is who God is going to mold him into. Because this was never built out on Gideon's faithfulness. This was always about God's faithfulness. It was always about God's faithfulness. All these questions, all these conversations, and it brings me to a point with you this morning. God was in it with Gideon for the long haul. And, and, and if you take anything away before we pray in a moment, if you take anything away from our talk this morning, it's this. God is in this with you for the long haul. But Mark, you don't understand how many times I've quit. No, wait, stop. Stop. Surely you're not going to beat Gideon's record here. That's why I think that, that this, this event and this narrative is almost unbelievable because it places us in a very good spot in our life to understand, God, that God is in this with you for the long haul. But I failed. I, no, I know you have failed him. He's in this with you for the long haul. You've made promises and you broke those promises. God knows that. He's in this with you for the long haul. Yes. I went this direction and I knew God was sending me to, and I, I just turned and went another direction because it, it was just, I couldn't resist this. And no, God is in this with you for the long haul. Trust him. He is big enough. And powerful enough to work in the middle of the struggles of your life. Later on, read chapter 7 of Judges. But what we see here in this whole story is Gideon's accusations against God. That he's not faithful, he's not good, he's not kind. And then God responds with simply, don't be afraid, Gideon. I'm going to give you an army of 32,000 men. Wow, that's not bad. Of course, you have to remember the Midianites, you can't even count them, there's so many. 
And so I have 32,000 men. And God says, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Gideon. I have to tell the rest of the story. God says, wait a minute, Gideon. You know, there's something else I want to throw at you here. And the fact is that your army is too big. So let's kind of whittle that down. Well, God, we're like one in 10 right now, you know, odds wise. And and so God, we're going to be crushed. And God says, no, I don't want you to have any pride or take any any kind of glory from this. So let's cut it down. And so he says, okay, well, now we're like one in 20. Are you happy, God? And God says, no, you know what? You're going to be a little cocky. If you when you win this thing now, so let's cut it down again. And so, okay, now we're one in a hundred. Is that okay, God? And God says, Yeah. Now go get them. Really? Seriously? Lord, don't ever have that conversation with me, right? You know, I don't want that, God. <clears throat> but it gets better because then He says to Gideon, Oh yeah, by the way, have another idea. Leave your swords and your shields here. And then what I want you to take up is I want you to take up some torches and I want you to take some pots and some trumpets. Really? I mean, it's going to be a massacre now. It's only three, 300 of us and now we're going to run up and what we're going to do, we're going to throw the pots at them. Yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to try to burn a couple of them, you know, at least before they take us down. And at least some of them will leave no longer being able to hear because we're going to blow those trumpets as loud as we can. At least they'll never forget us. And they'll tell stories about us for years. What God is saying to him and what God is saying to all of us in this room is this. I've got you. You think that you have you? No. I've got you, God says. Just stand firm in me. He covers us with his power. Because when we are faithless, he always remains faithful. He always remains faithful. You know, Gideon is this guy that tends to be really, I think, overly hard on himself. When he asks God for that second fleece, it's almost as if he apologizes for him having to ask that. So you can tell kind of how he sees himself. And I think he always thought that surely this is somehow God punishing me, that God is not for me and God is not utterly about our deliverance or his promises or he's not about grace and steadfastness and love and kindness. Yet we see God taking a guy like that and God is saying, Gideon, calm down. Just be quiet for a moment. I have this. Because what I realize about God that God never calls us to something for His glory that we can do on our own. God never calls us to something for His glory that we can do on our own. It is something always outside of that. It started with Abraham, and you can find that all the way through the Old and New Testament. That our weaknesses, our weaknesses are a critical part of God's strategy to show Himself strong. So, where have you limited God in your life this morning? You can make all the excuses that you want, just as Gideon did. But in the end, God says, hey, wait a minute. I've got you. I have this. Now take 300 men and go wreck the Midianites. 
and your story will be told for thousands and thousands of years. Because Gideon, this was never about your faithfulness to begin with. I truly believe that's why God never chastised him and God never punished him for his faithlessness. Because it was never about Gideon's faithfulness to begin with. It was always about God's faithfulness. So trust him this morning with your life. Trust him right where you are now because that's where he meets us in our doubt in our fear in our perceived failures he meets us now could you bow your heads for a moment with me father we struggle we struggle with the word suffering it's not the thing that we as your creation lord you know us very well line up for And so, Father, we have somewhat wrote you out of those places in our lives in the past. Especially those areas that we have somehow self-inflicted pain upon us through our poor decisions. We have made statements like, well, I just made my bed and I have to lie in it. Or this is the path that I chose and I'll just have to walk it out. Oh God, you're speaking to us so powerfully by your Holy Spirit this morning with this resounding no in our spirit that you are here to work in our lives where we are today in the middle of what we have perceived to be failure. You are there in the middle, Father, working to mold us into the person that you have designed us to become. Because, God, the greatest miracle of the day with Gideon was not the destruction of the Midianites. But the greatest miracle with Gideon, Father, we know, was that after the battle, he was not the same man that he was when you called him to the battle. And that's how you work in our lives. That you change us. You're always there guiding us, even when we don't recognize your providential hand. So, Father, in that we find great hope for our lives. That we answer the resounding question of centuries. If you are with us, then why is this happening? And it's for your glory that you may be known that there is a bigger work to be done. That there is a revealing of our own hearts. That there is a molding of our lives. That you are the creator and the sustainer of life and there's nothing that is too hard for you. So we trust you this morning, Father. Speak to us powerfully. May we see you in every moment of our life and give you glory for that. In your name we pray. Amen.